Well, amen. So glad you're with us this morning. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope. We're going to be in the book of Acts today, so if you brought a copy of the scriptures, fantastic. You can open it up to Acts. If not, please don't panic. Uh, We're going to have those words on the screen for you, and we would love to gift you a copy of the scriptures. As you're walking out, you can get a little hardback ESV, which is a modern English translation from the Greek and Hebrew uh, of the Bible. We'd just love for that to be something that we could gift to you. Please feel free to take one of those. So, where were we? If you were here last week, we're talking in the book of Acts about some strange things that were taking place in the scriptures. Certainly they seem strange. And also, it's the part of Scripture that in some ways is most applicable to us. We live in the same setting as those first disciples, those first Christians who began to live and walk as kingdom builders, kingdom workers, those that were called to build the kingdom of God by preaching Jesus' message, Jesus' way, but without Jesus. It's one of the advantages that they got that we don't in some ways get is that they got to walk with Christ. Well, where is he now? He's not with us now in that way, but he has given us now a couple of gifts and they're not to be sneered at. The first, of course, is the scriptures through those men that God pulled along himself with himself, those disciples that he had. He he gave to us the, the scriptures, his word. And again, that's not to be sneered at. This is God's word to us and in many ways captures perfectly the Jesus that we didn't get to walk with, but they did get to walk with. If you go to the Gospel of John, it begins by calling Jesus the word. That's the same word that we have. This word that we can learn from and memorize and try to allow to change us and to comfort us and to scare us and to to also show us who God is and what it would be like to walk with him. We have the word, but we also have what we talked about last week, which is the spirit of God. In a very real sense, we have the presence of God himself in us who have believed in the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you've heard some about the Holy Spirit, I think that might be some concern to you. What does that mean necessarily? There's a spirit that lives inside me. We say that in a churchy way and it sounds kind of fantastic. If somebody just came up on the street and said that to you about themselves or about you, you would think like, it's called the Ghostbusters. What are you talking about? You have a spirit inside you. Well, yeah. Yeah, you have the Holy Spirit inside you. God's real presence poured out by Christ. And when the Holy Spirit first came among the disciples, they expressed that presence in a very loud, interesting, kind of crazy way. They began to speak. But they spoke in such a way that everybody around them, though they were from lots of different places, understood them to be speaking their own heart language. And you can imagine that they very quickly understand that the Phrygian guy is hearing them speak to him in Phrygian. And there would be that first moment where he would say, why is he speaking in Phrygian and my Egyptian guy next to me understands what he's saying? And the guy next to him would at the same time say, can you believe he's speaking Egyptian, Phrygian? (gasps) You hear him speaking Egyptian, I hear him speaking Phrygian. And all of a sudden, the Syrian guy walks up saying, how's he speaking Syrian? And everybody starts to compare notes and realize that these people are actually miraculously speaking all the languages at the same time. We talked about that last week. And we talked about the person of the Holy Spirit. But now let's dive in a little bit deeper to the content of that miracle. 
Because, especially as a younger person, I'm growing up, I'm reading the scriptures, I was jealous for the people who got to witness the miracles in scripture. Wouldn't that have been cool to be on the boat and watch Jesus go, hey, and the storm stops. Or multiply the bread, or raise somebody from the dead. That wasn't supposed to rhyme. There are some pastors that are like almost a little hip-hoppy in the way that they'll deliver what they're saying. I can't do that. I wish that I could. That wasn't supposed to rhyme. But wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it have been cool to be with Christ as he's doing these miracles or in the Old Testament? We're reading, if you're going through our reading plan right now, all kinds of stuff about Elijah and Elisha. And they're doing this stuff that would be wild to witness. And yet, the, the display of the miracle is not the point of the miracle, is it? It's not the magic that we're trying to watch. See, in the scriptures, when it describes these miracles, there's always a meaning to them. God's purpose in doing these things is always to express something greater. And there's no, there's no difference here as we read about what's going on in Acts chapter 2. All of the sudden, God's people enter into the battle that Christ has been preparing them for. Now, I get really into this, and some people maybe don't, but I think the scripture paints a very clear picture that we are, as the seed of the woman, we talked about this as we talked about in Genesis, as the seed of the woman, we are supposed to be warring against the seed of the serpent. There's something right and true in man's desire to kill dragons. And as you read through scripture and you get into the New Testament and some of the stuff we talk about because it's there as man gets a little difficult. When we say that you are the bride of Christ, is that supposed to encourage you, dude? It's a little weird. You have to kind of take a couple of abstraction leaps to get from the content of that illustration to the goodness of that illustration. But there's also a a thread through Scripture that makes clear that we've been called to take up the fight of the holy ones against the evil one. Not that we're holy, but being made holy in Christ. We are given this battle. There's this really wonderful story. I don't know what you want to call it, a fairy tale or whatever. But it's one of the saints' lives stories about St. George and the dragon. Have you heard that story? Once I tell it to you, I think you'll think, oh, no, that's not him. That's Briar Rose and Sleeping Beauty. Okay, no, it's not. St. George came before (laughs) Sleeping Beauty. But what happened was this guy, St. George, comes along, this group of pagan people. They don't know Christ. They've never heard the name of Jesus. And they, they have this plague of a dragon. And the dragon lives in the waters that feed the town and poisons the waters. And attacks the people until they worked out this deal with him where they give him sheep daily, and they give him a human sacrifice annually. They used to give him men, send up brave men, but then eventually they had to start sending up their children. And they would take by lottery each year somebody to be given as the sacrifice to the dragon until the year St. George came when the lottery took the king's own daughter. And of course, the king is distraught and he puts all of his money on the table and says, whoever will take the place of my daughter, can have my riches, but nobody takes him up on it. 
and it's time. And he is sending his daughter, dressed as a bride, to go and be killed, sacrificed to this dragon as tribute for the people. And then along comes St. George. And he hears what's happened, and he hears what's happening, and he rides to the place of the dragon as the dragon comes up to try and eat this woman, and he puts his lance in place, and he injures the dragon so severely that he's able to take the girdle of the bride lady and put it on the dragon like a leash and lead him down into the town. And he says to all the people, see this dragon? They're like, whoa, you, you injured the dragon. He's like, yeah, I did. And he takes his sword and he cuts off the head of the dragon right there in front of everybody. And they're so taken by the glory of God in the night that has come to free them from this evil that they all convert to Christianity right there on the spot. Fifteen plus all the wives and children. And they build a church on that spot where the dragon was killed. And in that church, a fount springs up. And apart from being poisonous like the water that the dragon tainted, the water that comes up in this church, they can drink and it heals all their diseases. What do you think of that story? You're like, that sounds true, right? It's a very historic story he just told. No, well, or is it? Or is it? When I was a kid at youth camp, I remember asking a question, why don't we get to see the miracles like the parting of this Red Sea and all this different stuff? And it was like, uh, you could do it anonymously. You just put a piece of paper in the basket and then the, the camp pastor would answer these questions. Which was good, because he was kind of like, what an idiot. Uh, We see miracles every day. People are changed and come to Christ. Next question. Like, he didn't even finish the thought. He's like, of course. And isn't he right? Watch. Watch. As Jesus has commissioned these men to stand up and slay dragons. Acts chapter 2, Peter standing with the eleven lifts up his voice and addresses them. If you remember at the end of the last passage, they accuse those who are speaking in tongues of drunkenness because, I don't know, I guess they just sounded like they're babbling even though everybody can understand them in their own language. The scoffers say, man, they must just be drunk. And then Peter puts up a great response. He says, men of Judea, Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. Not even nine o'clock. That's a great response. And I hope that he's joking. I hope that that was like a joke. He's like, if it was 3 p.m., 5 p.m., yes, they might be drunk. <laughs> nine o'clock, though, Seriously. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he, he immediately, this is a good principle for us, interprets what is confusing by what is known. He takes scripture in order to interpret what's taking place. We're always bowing experience under scripture. And in the last days it shall be. Now the prophet Joel is in the Old Testament. He's one of those little books towards the end of the Old Testament. And the prophet was speaking to the people of Israel these things that would be. And Peter is able through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to take this passage from Joel and apply it to what's taking place. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon 
to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, let's think, let's think about what God is doing through the Apostle Peter as he begins to interpret. He begins to preach the first Christian sermon. He takes the words that these people are speaking and the words, the the miracle of the words that they're speaking as they're prophesying and telling the people the words of God. He interprets it through scripture to say that in those last days, the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on the people of God and everyone will be filled with that spirit and empowered to go and to speak the word of God to the people. And then he perfectly does what we need to do. He takes them from the fact of the miracle to the meaning of the miracle. Because what does it matter that you can speak? What's more important is what you're saying. And the content of the words he's able to get to quickly by this verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not just about describing the Holy Spirit's work, but talking about what the Holy Spirit is doing. And how does Peter have, right off the top of his head, this perfect passage that perfectly unites the miracle that's going on with the content of the message? Is Peter a genius? I think you would have difficulty supporting that theory from the rest of Scripture. But you can trust what the Holy Spirit does to his people. Oh, with fear and trembling do I stand before you on a week-to-week basis or sit still before you on a week-to-week basis to preach God's word to you? With fear and trembling do I speak between the weeks, between Sundays when I get to meet somebody and ask what I do. All right, let me try and explain this to you and then tell you quickly about Jesus. But no, the Holy Spirit is speaking through his people and hear what's happening again, the dragon slaying that's taking place as the serpent lies and twists the words of God. God's people declare and explain the word of God. And that's what he's doing. He begins with this very, very helpful description of what's taking place and then quickly jumps into the content. He says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? Well, what do I want to be saved from? We're all just standing here in the open market. It's festival time. Why would I need to be saved? Well, then he continues, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know this Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Whoa. Did you hear what he did in the sermon there? We're going to do the same thing because we follow scripture. He takes... The story that they all know about the person of Jesus and he gives them the meaning of it. And and be careful because the meaning of it implicates the people. What do I need to be saved from? Well, you did a bad thing. What bad thing? 
Jesus whom you crucified. Is that a legitimate accusation of you and me? Was it a legitimate accusation of all this people from all these different areas that traveled back to Jerusalem for the, the, the festival of Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost? Only if the death of Jesus was about more than the specific Pharisees, Judas, and Romans who put him to death. You have to open up all the scripture to understand this, but it's preaching it from every passage. You and I have rejected God. Oh, I hate to say it. So cruel and also it's so like, Uh, caricature-ish. It's what you expect me to say. But it's what the scripture says. It says that you and I have rejected the rule of God. Maybe you believe that God exists. Maybe you don't. But that's not really even the heart of it. The heart of it is, do you want God to exist? Now we can talk about the apologetics, the fact of it, the defense of it. We can talk about Aquinas and whatnot. But do you even want God to exist if it means that he's Lord and you're not. In the Old Testament, they embrace idolatry. In the New Testament, you don't get very far before they crucify Jesus. What's this saying about our hearts? Well, in our day, we choose anything besides God. Can I prove it to you? And I'm just going to use biblical categories here. But biblically, idolatry is when you worship anything other than God. What do we mean by worship? We mean to seek safety or satisfaction with capital S's, your ultimate safety, your ultimate satisfaction in anything other than God. Now, if you're somebody who is not claiming to be a follower of God, you're just seeking it out, you're just trying to understand, would you say that there's times in your life, or maybe all of your life, when you are not finding ultimate satisfaction and security in God alone? Of course. Now, Christian, would you say the same thing? Of course. But the Christian has to repent further, because so many people use their religion... Not to worship God, but to indebt God. They use their religion to try and get wages from God. Here's why that's so wicked. Your worship of Him is supposed to be love towards Him. You're not supposed to be able to use it to somehow indebt God to you. As though your, your righteous acts of showing up at Hope Church and maybe giving a little money and serving a little bit on the weekends somehow was supposed to indebt the God of the universe to you, his creation. No, the scripture says that our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. It is only the Christian who repents, not only of their sin, but repents even of their righteousness. 
Oh, that's the heart of Christianity. And every religion the world has ever produced works exactly the opposite to that, in that we are supposed to follow the way or the principle or the law. And to the degree in which we follow it, we are rewarded or punished by said deity. Break them all down, boil them down to their essence, and see if that's not a common issue with every religion in the world until you get to this one. Peter's first point is that we are all culpable of the death of Jesus. And yet, that's not where he dwells and neither should we. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The way he's going to draw you to himself is not guilt. Oh, you shouldn't have done that, sinner. (sighs) Maybe you start there. But do you see that he put forward his son to die for you and for me, knowing what we would do? Do you think God was caught off guard when Jesus went to die for our sins? During the trial of Jesus, as he's being beaten and then examined by the different people that he kind of goes through from the garden to the cross, there's a moment where he stands before Pilate. The governor in Rome, and he said, or uh, the Roman governor in Jerusalem, and he says this. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Pilate speaking to Jesus, Where are you from? Pilate shook up. He's trying to figure out how to get out of this and how to release Jesus. Save face and release Jesus. But Jesus gives him no answer. Pilate said to him, You're not going to speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? What was Pilate's normal experience in these situations? People are pleading with him. What can we do? What can I give you? How can I tempt you to release me? And here Jesus stands in total peace, tranquility, and silence. So Pilate pokes him. Don't you know what I, I can do for you? And Jesus answered him. You have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So he's talking some about the ways in which Peter and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Judas and, and Pilate kind of interact in this whole situation. But he begins by saying, you don't have any control in this situation. I'm not submitting to you, I'm submitting to God. God who knew, God who trusted, God who decided to allow his son to be crucified by you and me. And as soon as we got the chance, not only the Pharisees, but the crowd screamed, crucify him, crucify him. And yet, again, that's not where Peter is sitting because as soon as he talks about what these lawless men have done, he's reminding them again about what he said in Joel, about how it has come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Salvation is now possible to everyone. And he continues by talking about who this Jesus is and about how this resurrection took place. Verse 25, David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. I've got to read quick. We're running out of time. He's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh also dwells in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the path of life. You make me full of gladness with your presence. He's quoting from the Psalm, Psalm 16. We've preached about it here at Hope Church. David, who wrote that Psalm thousands of years before, talking about... Somebody, probably not himself, how could it be? 
Peter begins to make that argument. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Again, what is Peter doing in these sermons? Is he giving you his thought for the day? No, he's taking scripture and he's interpreting what's going on in their world through the lens of scripture. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and that uh, uh, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What's he saying? He's saying that though we crucified him, God didn't stay there. He rose from the grave and he saw it coming. This is what was told from the beginning by the prophets, even David himself, as he prophesies about his son who was to come, who God would not allow to stay dead. David, even understanding that one after him was greater than him, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the grand conclusion. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, you always emphasize at the end what you emphasize in the middle, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, sorry, Work really hard the rest of your life and try and be really good and hope that somehow you can pay off the whole crucifying his son sin. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. So just go have your fun when you can. No. He says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone who calls uh, I'm sorry everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself God has left the door wide open for any of us to come to salvation though we have done the most gruesome sin possible. Wide open. There's a guy that some people think is very against salvation and has tied it way down. His name is John Calvin. If you know something about his theology, you might be surprised by this quote. God admits all men to himself without exception. Since no man is excluded from calling upon God, the the gate of salvation is open to all. Repent and believe and you can be saved. That's what he's saying to them. They're cut to the heart. They realize that what they've done is wrong, but as soon as they realize it, they can confess it and they can be forgiven for it. And in fact, after many other words, he's sharing this gospel, he's speaking to them over and over again, he's continuing to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. <laughs> Go back to St. George for a second. The dragon is slain. 
And the people look at what was over them, killing them and killing their children. And they see victory over it. And the one who's delivered that victory points to Jesus. And all the people believe. And then the church that is built on that place becomes this, this place, this fount of water, this spring of living water that you can come to and be healed. Do you not see that that's exactly what's taking place here? Spiritual, not physical, but the spiritual is way more important than the physical. What do we do with this? Well, again, what's happening in this passage is that God is empowering his people to preach his message his way. And Peter has to speak boldly to people who just killed the guy who gave him the teaching that he's speaking to. If Peter really believed that they just crucified Christ, this crowd, it's a bold move to tell them that they are under God's condemnation for crucifying the Christ and that they better repent. And of course, you don't have to get too much further in the book of Acts to find Peter being beaten to preach this word. You don't go much further after that to find the first person who is himself stoned just as Christ was crucified for preaching this message. When you read this, when you understand it, will you be faithful to speak it with boldness? Uh, I, I wonder the same thing about myself. It's one thing to get in here where we kind of kind of control the environment and control the way things are going and then to give these very controlled presentations. But am I willing to put my skin in the game if it means beatings, if it means losing my property or my money or my family? Well, I've only got one response, and it's the same psalm that that Peter quoted, Psalm 16. How do we know that we're going to be okay? How do we know that God's going to lead us through this valley of death? Well, we're able to sing the same song that David, through prophecy, and then Peter in this sermon are singing. I've set the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Why? Why? Because you're not going to let my soul go and see Sheol. You're not going to abandon my soul to hell. You're not going to let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You're able to say to all those arrayed against you, if you kill me, you only serve me. My God has died so that death no longer holds fear for me. And in the gospel, I find an unparalleled treasure of comfort, reason to praise. We have to be faithful from this text to preach it, to preach that that message that way, with that kind of boldness, meaning that we're going to encounter difficulty, but to find in that message praise. Does your heart overflow with praise for God for what he's done in the gospel? And then, of course, lastly, what's the point of this message? The point of this message is to partake. To say to yourself, is this something that I believe? 
Is my heart like theirs, one that rejects God's lordship over me? If so, then I'd like you to start thinking about whether or not the Bible has more insightful things to say about who you are and why your life looks the way that it looks. See if the scriptures have more insightful things to say about religion more broadly and the gospel particularly. I just want to invite you to continue to investigate and to pray through these things and see to yourself, okay, maybe I don't believe everything that they believe, but are they right about this? If so, can I take one more step and see if they're right about maybe some other things? My prayer for you is that you will come to that moment of saying, God, I need your forgiveness on me. That God would make you new in him. And Hope Church, we want to just make that as open as possible, give you as many opportunities for that as possible. And and humbly, let me just ask to, to come back next week and hear more. And for our people, I pray that you would use these moments, these words, this gospel to bolden yourself up and to praise. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we pray right now that you would do that. That you would use our fumbling words, you would use the foolishness of preaching that could never capture an an iota of the beauty of your gospel. And yet, Father, we pray that you would use it to change hearts and change lives. Change my heart, change my life, Father. Make in me boldness. Give me a conviction for how beautiful your gospel is so that I praise you through the week, finding my security and satisfaction in you alone. Teach us, Father, to preach your message your way. Not with judgmentalism, not with pride, but with humility. Not returning evil for evil, but but being willing to forgive and trust. Lord, make us a people who shine the light of your gospel far and wide for your glory and for our good. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.